0: Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Mount Air, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So some of you may have seen this on, on Facebook, some of you may have they may not, you, you just know because I've talked to you, but a couple of weeks ago, actually you know, like a week ago, I had an opportunity to experience something I have never experienced in my life. And it was just so cool. Now, I grew up in a, in a small rural community uh, that's about 4,000 people in Western Illinois, south of the Quad Cities, a little town called Alito, And, but, but we lived in town. Like I had friends that lived on the farm and we would go out and run around and play. But uh, as far as actual farm work, I didn't really do a lot. So just this past week, Tom Sackett texts me. and is like, hey, I'm planting corn now. Uh, do you want to ride along? Now, I have to be honest. I had this kind of bifurcated thought. My first thought was, you're a grown man. <laughs> you're not an elementary school kid going on a field trip. Sitting next to the guy in the tractor, you're a grown man. Like, but but then on the other side, I'm like, of course you're going. Like, why wouldn't you? Like this is this was just such a cool opportunity. And so I go and and I'm sitting in the tractor, and he's got the planter behind him, and we just start planting in the field. And it was it was a really eye-opening experience and a lot of ways and and i'm not gonna i'm still like unpacking all the ways that that i was just learning about how busy you are in the tractor about how much goes on and how i am unqualified to do a single thing although shane my offer to help you on the farm still stands (laughs) i will i will gladly be there you're just gonna have to hold my hand the whole way like you just turn that three times that's you know um but but one of the things that i was telling some of my friends that live Uh, in in more urban places that we've lived in, Uh, and maybe I'm wrong in this, so so tell me if I'm just being dramatic, but I'm like, the importance of a seed and what it means to a town and what it means to a region and an economy, and what I would even tell them means for you living in Buffalo cannot be, like, it's really important. And I'm watching these, well, I'm not literally watching the seeds go in the ground. I'm watching the planter, I think, put them in the ground. But thousands of seeds are being put in the ground that have a profound impact. And their potential and the hope of what will eventually rise up in that field really does shape our entire culture here. And it shapes a lot about our world. And it gave me a, a, a tremendous amount of even greater awe and respect for the work that farmers do and the impact of it. And I was thinking about, you know, the power of a seed and it reminded me of what we're doing in the book of Genesis as we walk through this book of Genesis. And I don't think, the similar way that I really don't think the power of a seed can be underestimated, I also want to put before you that the importance of Genesis, the book of Genesis in the Bible cannot be understated this is a profoundly important book and i just want to pause for a minute that there are some in the ministry some very well-known pastors I'll, i'll tell you that will tell you that we don't need to read the old testament anymore that all we need is the gospels matthew mark luke and john and you don't really need the old testament and i need to tell you if you're hearing a pastor say that stop listening to them Because that's not true. You can't understand anything in the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, a third of the New Testament is written uh, verbatim of, of Old Testament references. You can't understand why Jesus had to die without the Old Testament. We need both. God is not one God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. He is one God revealing something to us. And Genesis is the foundation stone of that. It is literally the beginnings, and I love what A.W. Pink said. He's a a theologian from the 1800s, and in his book, Gleanings in Genesis, he wrote this, Appropriately, has Genesis been termed the seed plot of the Bible? For in it, we have in germ form almost all of the great doctrines, which are afterwards fully developed in the books of Scripture to follow. Seeds are being planted in Genesis, and these seeds are massively important. And God, in, as he progressively reveals what he's doing in history, these seeds begin to grow, and we see what they look like, what they're for, why they're important. Some of the important seeds that we have seen so far in chapters 1 through 4 are things like this. God is the maker of all things. Another seed that we've seen is the power and sufficiency of his word. That mankind is made male and female in the image of God and that we were made for relationship with God and to represent God throughout the earth. Relationship and representation. If you want to know what your fundamental identity is as a human being, this question that we are all searching for, the scriptures answered it thousands of years ago for us. Your fundamental identity is that you were made in the image of God. And that you were made for relationship with him and you were made to represent him on the earth with what you do. We also saw the seed form of what sin brought to the world. We read uh, 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 kind of a, a, a very powerful but sobering teaching in Romans chapter 1 of what sin has done to the world. That mankind's rebellion brought that sin to the created order. And that the consequences of this are all-encompassing and the consequences of sin are immense, ultimately seen in death. Despite this, however, we also see the seed of hope in a promise that God gave in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Darren and I are referencing this verse a lot because it's really important. Where God says to to, to the woman, that she will give birth to one, who will crush the head of the serpent that is our tempter, and that and that stirred our hearts to be deceived and to rebel. That in his loving prov- and in his loving provision, we see that God Himself clothed Adam and Eve from their shame. In those two words and deed, we see a hope that is planted. And yet, as we go to chapter four, we see this. Things have quickly unraveled. We go from Genesis 131 to God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good. We get to the end of Genesis chapter 2 that God had, had just instituted marriage for the first time and, and man and woman are living in God's Garden doing his work, re- relating to him, representing him on the world. Their relationship was one of harmony, and it said that there they were, both naked and unashamed. These are beautiful pictures. And then we move into chapter four, and what we see is that things have quickly unraveled. The curse of sin has brought devastating consequences. That number one, and most importantly, has broken our relationship with God. It has broken our relationship with one another, and it has broken our relationship to the world. Now we work by the sweat of our brow. Now we have a world that shows fits of rage and groaning all the time. Think of the tornadoes that we've seen. Sin keeps growing and evil is appearing to have the upper hand. Think of what chapter 4 talks about Cain. One of the sons of Adam and Eve has a brother Abel. And Cain is bitter with jealousy and hatred. So much that it leads him to murder his own brother. Then the escalation of sin and its effects is in, embodied in Cain's descendants. So Cain is Fits with jealousy and rage, murders his brother, and then God even gives Cain mercy. And Cain begins to be fruitful and multiply and have children. And we see that Cain's line is beginning to spin out of control. So what we get is we see that, that, that for example, uh, Cain's line ends, you'll see, with a man named Lamech. And Lamech has two wives. And that he has tremendous vengeance, and hatred towards others. Look at, look at what it says to reference this just real, real fast. So in Genesis chapter 4, we see towards the end here. Verse 32, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. Lamech is, say, so, so what started out with bitter and jealousy, that leads to murder. Now Lamech is like, I'll kill a dude for slapping me. He's going all like Clint Eastwood in The Unforgiven, where at the end, remember he's crouching down and he wants to walk out in the street. And he's like, if anybody takes a shot at me, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill his family. I'm going to burn his house to the ground. Like, that's Lamech. Right, what started out is good, living in harmony, has turned to my vengeance if you slap me is 77-fold. But despite all of this, the opening section of Genesis ends with a glimmer of hope. Adam and Eve are blessed with another son. Another son of promise. And his name is Seth. And at that time, verse 426 says that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we got to picture this, right? So we have Cain and all his descendants. It's spiraling into sinful out of control that is leading to just what we'll see in Genesis chapter 6 as God laments that he made man. It's just this rising of rebellion and sin and hatred and it's growing and it's spreading. But in the midst of this is this green, beautiful plant that is starting with this seed named Seth. And we see that, that that this line that comes from Seth is a part of a line that calls upon the name of the Lord. In the midst of all the uprising evil that is going to spin so out of control that God is actually going to flood the earth and destroy them all, there is yet still hope The connotation in verse 26 is that in the midst of all the growing evil there is a group who publicly call on the name of the Lord their God as a personal covenant keeping God Notice what it says in verse 26 look at how the how the word Lord is written capital L capital O capital R capital D what does that mean Yahweh Yahweh is God's personal name that he gives to his people. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Satan knows God as Elohim, as God, and he trembles in fear. God's people know God as Elohim, maker of heaven and earth, and know him as Yahweh. Personal, covenant keeping, promise making. And then what we do is we get to chapter 5, and chapter 5 then traces the lineage of Adam through his son Seth to 10 generations. And as we will see, the overall trajectory of this line is very different than the line of Cain. So if you're ready, we're going to read a genealogy. That's what you came to church for, right? So let me read this for us so we can just hear this, okay? So here's what I'm going to do. Just This isn't going to be on here. I'm going to start just a couple verses earlier. They're not going to be there. Then I'll pick up right here at verse 1. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in His likeness; He made them in the likeness of God, male and female He created them, and He blessed them and named them man. And then, when they were created, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years he followed Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived, after he fathered Mahalalel, 840 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Are you still with me? All right. Verse 15. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he followed fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he followed Methuselah. You don't hear a lot of these names anymore. It's kind of shame, huh? Enoch walked with God after he follow, fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he followed Lamech. Lamech lived lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Boy, that's an exciting read, isn't it? But here's the deal. It's easy to skip genealogies. That's easy to just jump over them when they're found in the Bible. They can be seen as tedious and they can be seen as unimportant. However, I just wanna put for you like, even though they're not like the most exciting thing to read, they are really important to the gospel story. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and that it is all profitable for us. And genealogies, one of the reasons why they're so important is because they show the historical nature of scripture and God's work in the world. They display that the Bible is not merely an allegory or a drama taking place in some spirit world, but that God is the God of history, in real history, and works his purposes through very real people, in real time, and in real space. Did you know that the early Christians in the first 150 years of the church one of the things that was really compelling to them was the fact that this god that was being talked about didn't take place in some weird spirit world but you could actually go to jerusalem you could actually go and see where jesus walked in places like galilee these were real people like 25,000 names dates and places in the bible never once has it been proven wrong it has only been proven right that doesn't mean they've found everything yet But this book, no other book has been more scrutinized in human history than this one, and yet it still stands. God moves in real time and in real space. Now, here's what you may be thinking. Okay, Methuselah lived 969 years. Seriously? Some other dude lives 777 years. Come on, you're telling me this is real time and real history? I'm 45 and my back hurts. Can you imagine being 500 and having children? (laughs) Holy smokes, I'm exhausted. (laughs) They're not even grandkids, (laughs) right? So what's the deal? What do we do with these numbers? Well, there's a couple ways to look at it. And the caveat to this, I'm going to be honest, I ultimately have no idea. (laughs) However, however, on one hand, did you know that there's archaeological evidence that has been found of people that have been, their days have been tallied in the thousands of years? There are kings that we have unearthed in these ancient obelisks and papyruses in this same region that date back around this time prior to the flood of Noah that say kings lived to be 22,000 years old. There's a span of, I think, four or five kings, forgive me for not uh, remembering the names, that if you tally up the number of days, and they don't seem to necessarily be allegorical the way they're written, that span like 200,000 years of life. So it's not unprecedented in ancient documents to see old days. So one of the possibilities is this. Maybe life was just really different before the flood. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in a couple chapters after the flood that God declares to mankind, you will not live more than 120 years. That's after the flood. That's not now. We were made to live forever. We're not that far from the fall. So, so there's something going on. Like, like Occam's Razor tells us that the that sometimes the best solution is the simplest one. And if this is a history book, and this is prior to the flood, closer to how God originally made everything, maybe they actually lived 900 years. And what's interesting is now uh, we're capped at 120. Science even seems to indicate that that's a really important number that we can't get beyond. Interesting fact. Another idea is, is that maybe these are numbers that, that show wisdom, that show strength of character, that show life. So, so this is a line of men and families that are calling on the name of the Lord, and there's strength and there's character. So like these kings that lived 22,000 years uh, as recorded, they were just really wise kings. And so to say they lived a long time was to show that they had great character. These were great kings. Maybe one of the things that this is telling us, these were great people. But ultimately, we don't really know. I'll tell you where I land, and you might think I'm crazy. I think life was a little different prior to the flood. I really do. I really do. But God promised that one would be born of a woman who will crush our enemy. And as Scripture unfolds, we see this promise gain clarity as he reveals which line and which lineage this promised one would come. And here is the first observation I want to point us to today that we see in the passage. That number one is this, Seth is a child of promise. Despite sin's best efforts to leave the world in darkness when Cain killed Abel, See, Seth is God's blessing to Adam and Eve. His birth began a lineage that stood out from the growing darkness around them. Where Cain's line leads to Lamech, and as we'll see in chapter 6, increasing wickedness on the earth to unmeasured proportions, Seth's line is different. They worship God and call upon his name. But sin is still present Notice how it says at the beginning of our passage, we're, we're reminded first that God made us male and female in his image. But then it says that Adam fathered Seth in Adam's image. So what we see is Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. And we've got to remember now Adam is fallen. And that image, that marred image has now been passed to Seth. His image is marred and so is all who come after him. Death is still present. Did you notice how many times this dude lived and he died? This dude lived and he died. This dude lived and he died. Death has now come in. Notice how many times it says, and he died. The curse of sin sin is still present and suffering still exists. Cain's line is expanding throughout the earth. We must keep this in mind. For chapter 5 is in the context of what's happening in 4 and in 5. This is almost a parenthesis. So chapter 4, sin is exploding. Chapter 6, sin is exploding. And in the middle is this line that calls upon the name of the Lord. But despite this being true, Seth's line is God's provision of hope, and the names listed must be viewed in light of verse 26, that these are the ones who called upon the name of the Lord in the midst of a very depraved generation. Seven generations down, it leads to a man named Enoch. And here is where we're going to make two more important observations, giving two more profound, wonderful seeds of truth. Look at what it says. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Notice how different Enoch is described from everyone else. We do not know much about him, but in what is said, we see two extremely important things, giving rise to these seeds of hope or planting these seeds of hope. Enoch walked with God. Enoch was not, for God took him. What does this mean? Enoch walked with God. I find A.W. Pink again very helpful in understanding this phrase. Walking with God means this, living a life of faithfulness and obedience to God. Look at what A.W. Pink says in a sentence, talking about this in Genesis. Walking with God means that we cease taking our own way, that we abandon the world's way, that we follow the divine way. We cease my, I cease my own way. I cease trying to get my wisdom from the world around me. And I'm going to follow the divine way. Walking with God was, uh, walking with God signified a way of life that was bent toward God and his glory. That, that, that God really is the God of his life. That God's worldview is growing in his worldview. And that his primary affections in life were God aligned, not his own self aligned or worldly aligned. Enoch lived a life of faith in the God he worshiped that was seen by others. Notice it didn't say Enoch said he walked with God. No, it was he walked with God. His life bore witness to it. He did not seek his own way or follow the evil of the world around him. And we also get insight about Enoch in the New Testament. For example, in the book of Jude, we read this in verses 14 and 15 about Enoch's life and actions. It says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. That they have committed in such an ungodly way and of the way the harsh and, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So now we learn that Enoch not only walked with God in a way that was seen, but he was a preacher to the wicked generation. Saying, guys, God's judgment is coming. Stop it. Enoch proclaimed the truth of God's word of coming judgment to a wicked world. Enoch lived in truth and proclaimed truth because he called upon the name of the Lord, of his glorious promise keeping God. And he did it as a part of a family that worshiped God in the midst of an increasingly evil world. But what does this mean? That he did all of this and then he was not. Every other patriarch listed in that genealogy died. Yet Enoch just was not. Wouldn't that be a nice way to put it? Eric Friedrich, born this day and then was not. (laughs) Right? Simply put, here's what it means. He didn't die. He didn't die, but God miraculously took him to heaven. One day he was living on the earth, walking with God, proclaiming truth, and then the next day he was gone. Death did not have a word to say to him, By God's grace. Do you see the two important seeds of the gospel that are planted in this one phrase with this one man's life? The two glorious seeds of hope which the rest of Scripture will grow and bear fruit? The first one is this that the life, or that the first is this, that life is found by walking with God. Life is found by walking with God. In his presence is the fullness of joy. In his presence is life. Do you remember the tree of life that was in the garden? There was nothing magical about the tree of life. The tree of life was the symbol of closeness with God. And when you are in God's presence, his presence brings life. And Enoch walked with God by having faith in him. It's how we please God. Twice in short succession, we're told that Enoch walked with God and this is directly tied to the fact that he did not taste death. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 5 and 6 gives us a little bit more insight into Enoch saying this, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God has taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Okay, well, how did Enoch please God? And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch's faith pleased God and he received an incredible blessing and hope that escaped death even though he was still a sinner remember Enoch was was still in the line of Adam he was a descendant of Adam and in his likeness he was born meaning under sin yet by faith he received eternal life which gives us the second seed of hope that sin and death do not have the final word for those who walk with God. Life is found by walking with God. The next seed is that sin and death don't have the final word for those who walk with God. Sin brings death. Sin brings death to all of us. Death to everything. And the all-encompassing effects of sin has literally and devastatingly impact every single aspect of this world. Have you ever had milk in a glass and then you want to put water in that glass? and then you think you've cleaned it all out, and you put water in and it's still cloudy. It's the same effects of sin. Death is the ultimate intangible evidence of this. And yet Enoch, Enoch's life stands out as a beautiful seed which bears glorious good news that death does not have the sting for those who walk with God, but eternal joy of being with God himself in his perfect place forever awaits him. Enoch, as important as he is, though, is just a seed. He's just a hopeful example because this is not a be like Enoch sermon. See, his faithfulness and escape from death does not accomplish anything for anyone else but himself. As we see in verse 25 and beyond, those who came after him still died. However, this genealogy does keep going. And we see it ends with a man named Noah. And Noah has three sons. And the next several chapters will focus on this, planting other important seeds of truth. But from one of Noah's sons, these seeds of promise will expand to a man named Abram, to a man named Judah, to a man named David all leading to the one who is the fulfillment of all God's promises to save the world and and a people for himself from the greatest enemy of sin, death, and evil. This one will be born of a woman. He will be born from the line of Adam, descending through Seth, and and the entire line highlighted in Genesis 5. This one will be the Messiah. He will be God's unique son who will take on human flesh and be more than just an example, more than just a picture of hope. And his name is Jesus Christ. He will be, unlike Enoch, Jesus is the true child of promise, of God coming to us, walking with us, 100% perfect and without sin and he will proclaim good news of the kingdom of God and he will suffer and die not for anything he did but for what we did. He will be buried for three days and in an unrivaled display of power and of victory and authority he rose from the grave dealing the final blow forever to all the darkness, chaos, and sin that evil has brought into the world. And unlike Enoch, who could save no one, Jesus the Messiah delivers all who place their faith and trust in him. And we become adopted from the line of Cain to be adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Unlike Enoch, who could not save anyone from death, but himself needed saving, Jesus is the defeater and the deliverer from death. So much so that our greatest fear in Christ can be taken away. You do not need to fear death. Let the weight of that hope sit with you. Because death is ultimately our blessed hope. Because our last breath in this life will be our first in the presence of the God who saved us. Is that real to you? And so, I want to close with this. In a world where sin and evil are still present and seem to have the upper hand, my first thing that I want to put before us is this. See the wonderful truth seated in Genesis And that's fulfilled in Jesus. Don't be like Enoch. See how Enoch is a seed that's meant to lift your eyes to Jesus. And place your whole, be all chips in on him. Sin and death do not have the final word. God is purposefully and patiently redeeming a people to himself. And then the end will come. Is this your blessed hope? Please place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not just once, but every single day. Martin Luther said that all of life is faith and repentance, trusting and following Jesus every day that my life of walking with God is not just to be a personal private experience that no one has windows into no it's to be seen like Enoch was seen proclaim the good news around you because sin is still rampant everywhere isn't it we don't have to look too far for that do we I'll be honest I don't have to look too far outside my own heart I need the gospel every day. And finally, rejoice. Rejoice for your Savior lives. Death has been defeated. One day, one great day, all things will be made new and we will be with our God forever in his perfect kingdom. Is that your blessed hope? Oh, I pray that it is. Because God has fulfilled and grown every seed of promise And that promise culminates in Jesus. Is he where your heart really lies? Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son. And God, I'm so thankful for your goodness. I'm thankful for the hope that you have fulfilled. I'm thankful that you have shown us the way to to know you and to have the sting of death taken away and that we can be a people of hope hope in this world, and to be proclaimers of hope, root the gospel deeply into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.